Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, here we are for the last episode of the series, which is very exciting. And um, we decided to do something a bit historical today, didn't we? We did, but as I know nothing about history and I don't trust what you know about history, we've got somebody to come and tell us all about it. We have. But the uh, the, the history that we're going to cover is we, we were talking, weren't we, about how uh, the tax base in, in the UK is really quite complex. And it hasn't always been that complex. And we were wondering how it got to be where it is today. Yes. So I think one of those facts that everybody who works in tax knows is why we first got income tax. Yes, which was the Napoleonic Wars, right? It was. And and, and income tax theoretically is quite simple because we still have that annual tax, but it's not at all the same as it was back then. No. So there were big changes, weren't there? So war drives changes, essentially. Um, and yes. there were big changes in the 20th century and various crises. Um, so the, the tax base in the UK as it is now is basically a product of the 20th century. Would you say? Uh, well, I think we should probably ask our guests that. But yes, it's it's <clears throat> certainly been a response to what has happened. And of course, you see that across the world. But as countries really develop, the tax system changes and develops along with those social, political, cultural changes. Yeah. So what we need is we need a guest who knows about the social, cultural and political changes of the 20th century in the UK, don't we? We do, yes, because that's about as far as we can go, well, as far as I can go on it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, I can I can tell you things about the, the 20th century, basically, because I've read some of his books and watched his teleseries. <laughs> So let me just introduce our guest, which is wholly improbable that he's, that he's agreed to come on. But we have with us today uh, Dominic Sandbrook, who is an excellent guest, hopefully, and was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. He's written the leading multi-part history of modern Britain, uh, books like Never Had It So Good, White Heat, State of Emergency, Seasons in the Sun, Who Dares Wins. Uh, I first saw him when I sort of was flicking through the channels and saw his uh, series on the 1980s. Uh, on BBC Two, which was absolutely fantastic. Then we spent quite a lot of time sitting in the back of a Morris Minor doing pieces to camera. Um, and uh, he now presents, co-presents with uh, another historian called Tom Holland, uh, a podcast called The Rest is History, which our Twitter followers will know we, or actually I, because you didn't uh, contribute like I asked you to, number one uh, podcast last year on our podcast poll that I did, um, so, oh, and also, most importantly, he's from the mighty county of Shropshire, uh, a, a Salopian. We have a Salopian on the podcast, don't we? So, Dominic, thank you so much for agreeing to be here. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, I had never imagined that we would win the coveted title of the uh, International Tax Bites um, Top History Podcast, but that is an honour I will... <laughs> I will carry that with me in my heart to the grave. See? There wasn't a trophy this year, but there might well be next year. And I'm sure well, you probably won't win there. next year then. That's just so awesome. you will get your your unique mug that all of our guests get. Really? Yes. Wow. wow. Which you will hopefully tweet. A yeah, I, I came on even without knowing there was a mug. <laughs> um, so, I mean, 
if I'd known there was a mug, I'd have done, I'd have given you days, days of material. <laughs> right, okay. As well, it you is, never know. You just get, hour, got, you just get hours. Or we hour, have got extensive minutes. notes, and your books are quite lengthy. So if you remember half of what's in there, we've got quite a lot of time. Oh, I don't remember anything in those books. If, oh, right. if you had me on under the false impression that I'm going to be able to remember what I wrote in my own books, then this will be a very short podcast. I'm, I'm so glad that there's somebody else who's prepared to say that publicly because I can, I can never remember what I've written. Because oh, you, you said this, and you think, did I? Yeah. Well, I might well have meant that, and I'd, I'd yeah. be interested to see it again. I'm exactly. sure I'd probably agree with it, but exactly. I don't remember it. Exactly. <laughs> we did do an episode which I entirely structured around one of Harriet's articles, which she completely forgotten she'd written. Right. Well, I'm glad it's not just midday. Yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> okay. So, Dominic, do you want yeah. to take us through the context, context of 1945? I mean, we've just won the war. Britain's just won the war. Um, it's all good, right? The empire's intact. Everything's <laughs> fine. Um, yeah. Churchill's standing on the balcony waving to the crowds. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the economy's brilliant, I would assume. No. Well, you know perfectly well that that's not the, that's not the case at all. So, to go back to something you said in the introduction, about the tax structure being um, uh, formed through crisis, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think the I think the, the tax system is actually a little bit like the welfare state. So it's one of those things that's kind of um, you wouldn't design it from scratch. It's sort of layer upon layer accretions done by successive political administrations as a sort of at each time a kind of ad hoc response to an emergency or a challenge. So. Um, Actually, you could argue that both the tax system and the welfare state develop kind of hand in hand. Um, and uh, there's a general, you were saying about countries and their tax systems and how they they develop. Basically, the state, the role of the state increases enormously in the 20th century, and, and that's a large part of the story. Um, and wars obviously drive that. So in 1945, you've had the Second World War, and you've had a massively expanded role of the state, huge amounts of borrowing. Um, you're right that uh, everybody's very jolly. Well, they're not jolly, actually. They're, they're relieved. They're delighted the war is over, but they're exhausted and they're kind of, um, there's a kind of sort of, there's just a, a general sense of fatigue, I guess. So economic, sort of moral, kind of psychological. Um, the empire is kind of intact, yes, but it's it's some of it has had to have been reassembled because in Asia, for example, it has been, you know, um, the Japanese had taken Singapore and taken much of the Far East and so on. So Britain has had to kind of almost reoccupy some of those places. That's expensive. Stationing troops overseas is very expensive. Um, we've obviously run up colossal debts um, to the Americans in order to pay for the war. So that's and the thing is, it's not just one war. It's two world wars. So Britain is the only country that has gone through. I mean, it's the only country that went through both world wars from start to finish and, and won both of them. But to do that was enormously expensive. Uh, and the irony is, of course, going into the First World War was largely done because of fear that if we didn't, the empire would be threatened. But in a way, the, the great irony of fighting the two world wars is that in order to do it, we basically ensured that the empire would, would go, which is, and defending it is a very expensive process um, because, you know, we've effectively bankrupted ourselves. So when Clement Attlee comes in, so he comes in before the end of the Second World War, the war in Japan is not yet over. When the Labour government come in in 1945 with their plans for the New Jerusalem and expanded welfare state, major nationalisations and so on, um, the economy, the, the government's finances are under enormous, enormous strain. Um, and it's, it's not, I mean, if you think about all the different, so they've got their manifesto commitments, 
They want to build homes for heroes, which we didn't really do. Um, well, we did, but not as much as people had hoped after World War One. So they want to do all that. They want to create a safety net. They have these grand, grand ambitions, the Labour Party, because, of course, they haven't been in power since 1931. Um, but there's also the challenge overseas of the Cold War. So World War Two is over, but a new conflict is at hand. Um, the expense of nuclear weaponry, the expense of keeping British a British army on the Rhine, um, the expense of uh, spending all this money to have troops in, you know, as it will turn out in the next few years, in Malaya, in Kenya, and so on. So what you have is, um, is, is, a, is a, it's already quite an old government, the Atlee government, old, government of old men, um, who have all these kinds of pressures and and who basically, you know, they don't have the the money to pay for it all. And that puts the system under enormous strain. So, Harriet, can you give us a sense of what tools they had? What taxes did they have? So back in, in the immediate post-war period, the tax system was much simpler and much cruder, almost, I think it's fair to say. So I think, Graham, you and I have talked about... Um, at length, the transfer of assets abroad regime, and that was really one of the very early um, tax avoidance measures. There were there were very few around this time, and so I think at this point, looking at the way legislation has developed, what you're looking at is sort of the development of those taxes and enforcing them with relatively crude tools. I mean, we know that nowadays it's getting harder and harder to hide income and of course really at that stage there weren't the same sort of taxes on capital or gains um but at that time when everything was paper-based um it's not fair to say that tax was optional but you certainly had a lot of options and the government the revenue didn't have a great deal of tools to fight that whether that be technological like like they do now with all of the information gathering or even sort of legislative provisions that allowed them to dip in and stop that sort of thing. But, and it's really one of the things that, that I witter on about a lot um, is the development of the Ramsey principle. And I think, just sorry to, to slip away into tax for just 30 seconds more. If, if tax had been focused on collection and sort of protecting revenues rather than generating new ones, we might well have seen that things like the Ramsey principle didn't develop in the way that they did because there wasn't there wouldn't have been that need for the courts to intervene. But yeah. that's that that to me is a direct response of sort of the crudeness of the tax system at the time. So we've introduced um, in 1944, we've introduced uh, what's called pay as you earn, pay, PAYE, which is an employment withholding tax, effectively a prepayment of tax. Previously, everybody had to file a tax return if they had income. And that's part of an expansion on the numbers of people who are paying tax. So I've got some figures. Harry, you know I've done a lot of research. Yes, I've got some figures, right? It's so great figures, actually. You don't undersell your figures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're much more, the, you were saying about the rest is history. Your notes are much better than the rest is history. <laughs> okay. Well, by the way, as an aside, you've got to persuade Tom to come on and do uh, tax in the classical world, right? He hates right. economics. There's no way he'll... I mean, he's, he, we'll is a horror of, he doesn't know anything about it, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not. Well, you've laid the gauntlet down now. He'll definitely come on. So um, in, in 1911, there was only one million people, or there were only one million people paying income tax in the UK. By 1945, that had risen to 10 million. And that's partly because 
PAYE has been introduced. So cash payments, because this is an entirely cash-based economy, isn't it? There's no bank transfers. I mean, there are checks, but like who wrote a check? I mean, I remember growing up in the 1970s, I knew I had relatives that didn't know how to write a check. Well, you have a lot of people, by the way, who don't have bank accounts. I mean, yeah. an awful, a, lot, a very large proportion of the country don't even have a bank account uh, in the 1940s. People used to put a suit on to go and see their bank manager, didn't they? Yeah. Um, which is an entirely bizarre idea now that, um, that that would happen. I remember we used to pay, um, we obviously deducted, we had a small business and we obviously used to deduct the PAY, but we paid people cash in an envelope with a payslip, handwritten payslip, because 50% of them didn't have a bank account. And that yeah. was in the 1990s. Um, so... It's entirely, this is, the, the tax authorities basically can't track, I think that's what you're saying, isn't it, Harry? They can't track what's going on in the economy. That's right. And uh, PAYE, though possibly not at the time, very much has become um, a, a weapon. These sort of taxes, a bit like VAT, where you get somebody else to do it and somebody else to, re somebody else to collect it and somebody else to report it and you can give them financial consequences for doing it wrong, that is a huge leap forward yeah. in terms of pulling people into the tax net. And just, just on your figures, Graham, um, that rise in the, the number of those paying income tax, not only is it a big rise in absolute terms, but percentage-wise, it was a huge rise as well, just in yeah. terms of... The, the, Gone the, up from, like, I don't know, 2% to 25%, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. That's why when you get to the 1940s or so, you see really in a marked way, arguably for the first time, people complaining about tax in a really big way. The, you have the, all these sort of novel, this sort of genre of novel by kind of upper middle class, quite genteel kind of lady novelists in their 50s complaining about taxes um, in a way that I don't think you would have done 30 or 40 years earlier because far more people certainly that the entire kind of professional middle class has obviously been absorbed into the into the sort of tax system and obviously i mean one thing you haven't mentioned is death duties um in the culture of the 1940s people going on and on about death duties it's such a common because i think that's that atlee puts them up to about 75 percent and i think they um, go even higher they, they were horrific weren't they and there was a period i know um i'm from lincolnshire and i know there are a lot of sort of very big houses which were actually destroyed yeah because that reduced in some way the death duty is payable so there's a lot of that in where i come from in the northwest where they'd knock a wing down to, uh, yeah, to knock 25 exactly. off the value of the house yeah and if you read even something very what well, might seem very trivial so an agatha christie kind of who done it written in the late 1940s early 1950s there's there's often a passage where the narrator or one of the characters will talk about the great house has fallen into decrepitude or Part of the great house has been knocked down or sold off, or the rich family have had to sell off a lot of land for a new housing estate because they can't pay their inheritance tax effectively. Do you know what? I think that may even have made it into Enid Blyton, into some of the school right. stories. Yeah. So is this part of, Dominic, would you say that this is part of the same sort of like the the, the broadening of our of participation in politics and the states that go on with increasing, uh, you know, votes, everybody, universal suffrage? Mm -hmm. um, and everybody becomes a taxpayer and everybody goes off and gets drafted to go fight in the Second World War. And so everybody is a is a true participant in the state. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So you go go back to the Napoleonic Wars where you started with the income tax. Um, for most people in that period and indeed for maybe two, three generations afterwards, 
the state really doesn't appear in your life very much at all. And when it does, it's it's for, for ill. You know, so if the state intrudes in your life, it's in the context of you being sort of semi-press ganged into the army or the navy or something, or you being, you know, the law intervening in your life in some way. But it's not really the state doing something for you. Um, what obviously changes in the 20th century is that the state just becomes implicated in people's lives. In, I mean, the state runs, let's say, the railways uh, or it runs coal mines. The state, you have a ration book, you have an identity papers, you have, you know, you're called up, as you said, for national service in the 1940s and 1950s. And this sort of idea of, I mean, you see this a lot in kind of Tory propaganda of mid-century, the idea of the state with its kind of tentacles, you know, spreading into your life. But obviously, this is a thing that governments of all parties kind of do. And and tax is is obviously one of the most um, sort of visible, most palpable ways that this happens. So filling in your tax return, or indeed the taxes you say with PAYE being deducted before you before you get it. Um, so you see people sort of anti you have a development of two things, I guess. So one is statism and the other is kind of anti-statism um, at the same time, kind of going going hand in hand. And that's why in if you watch any, you know, sitcom from the dawn of telly through to the sort of 1980s, people whinging about their tax returns. Sorry, whinging is a bit strong, but you know what I mean. Um, it is a, always a big theme of it. It's the kind of thing that kind of your Basil Fawlty complains about or Rigsby and Rising Damp or any of those yeah. kinds of things. This idea that the state is kind of, on your the state is kind of on your back the whole time squeezing money out of you people didn't really talk like that in the victorian period but, no. but this, this is sort of in contradistinction to the position now because it seems what you're saying is that any anger or dissatisfaction with the tax system was aimed at the state whereas we now seem to live in a situation where anger and dissatisfaction is aimed at other taxpayers who aren't paying enough in inversion oh yeah there was a little bit of so that's interesting. I think what there was a definite from the seventies onwards. I mean, we're leaping forward, so we should. I know we will come back in a second. There definitely become starts. You start to get talk about scroungers, about people who have something for nothing. People who are not paying in, but are getting too much out. But I think generally, yes, there's a more of a. Um, uh, I mean, now twenty first century, we look to the state automatically to do all kinds of things that people wouldn't have done a couple of generations ago. You know, your energy bills are too high. You expect the state to step in. COVID you know, you expect the state to set up a furlough scheme. Um, for people living in the 1940s, these things, are, the idea of that expectation on the state is something new. And it's kind of really born of wartime, I think, born of the kind of collective efforts. Um, you know, Churchill had said when he became prime minister in 1940, um, the interests of property, the interests of labor are as nothing, you know, compared with the great challenge that now confront us. That's a big, that's a a big reversal of the kind of, laissez-faire ethos that a lot of people are taking for granted during most of the 19th century so can we just let's just um recap exactly how ambitious the atley government was um it's it's basically got no money because it's all been spent bombing like germany yeah. yeah and then it comes in it established there is a pre-existing welfare state isn't there of yeah. a sort a that was... they create the welfare state i mean they don't create it out of nothing the liberals and then the tories in the 1920s and 30s had extended deep in the welfare state so there are you know pensions and so on but you're but, uh, right they want to build a much bigger welfare state. i think they're they're 
in a sense, pr privately insurance-based, that basically yeah. the thing that Nigel Farage keeps going on about that he wants us to do yeah. instead of the state paying for it, right? Yeah. So, um, which is the German system, I think, if I'm right. Well, most European systems. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, you mention it and, like, the heavens fall, but yeah. then you say Germany's got a great system. I don't understand how that works, but you go. Um, so uh, they, they expand that massively. They basically nationalise the entire health, health system of, yeah. um, of Britain. And then they go and start nationalising bits of industry as well, don't they? Yeah. They nationalise the railways. The mines. Yeah, all that stuff. Mines. National insurance itself is nationalised. And then, but they're paying for this, aren't they? They're not doing like Russians. It's not like men in red hats work, walking in with guns and saying, this belongs to the government now. They're actually paying the owners. Yeah. So it's, they're spending money like water. Well, they are spending a lot of money, yes. I mean, at, at this at the same time as maintaining an army abroad, a massive army. And building um, nuclear missiles. And building nuclear missiles, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're spending an awful, an awful lot of money. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Sometimes people, there's a particular kind of, kind of Tory historian that says, oh, this is where it all went wrong for Britain. The Attlee government, you know, spent far too much money, built too generous a welfare state. The, the the trouble with that argument is our welfare state actually isn't very generous by European standards. Um, but also, it's it's impossible to imagine a scenario in which any government would not have done those things. The just the public pressure to have a, a a welfare state of that kind with a health service of some kind means that it almost certainly would have done. I mean, the fa the famous um, metaphor that people use, and Iron Bevan when he set up the NHS said basically he had to stuff the consultants' mouths with gold to get them to um, to agree, because the doctors, you know, the, the British Medical Association were dead against the idea of um, kind of nationalised medicine. So that gives you some sense of the, you know, this sort of image of stuffing people's mouths with gold gives you some ex sense of how expensive this was, actually, and how then basically, you know, you, I think what, what you get is the tax burden, is it about 37%, the high 30s? um at the end of the 1940s which is the highest ever um in 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 british in modern british history so that gives you a sort of sense of the and, and i think there's actually an expectation at the time among some people that that it could go higher you yeah. know that 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 sense of the kind of the nationalization of public life paid for by tax revenues but you know, did th they think it was going to be paid for by tax revenues i think i read somewhere or i heard somewhere that bevan thought that Bevan had this idea that as people got healthier because they were treat, being treated, well, yeah, the, the cost yeah. of the NHS would go down. Yeah, well, they, they definitely thought that. I mean, they thought there would be a, you know, I don't know, five-year, ten-year sort of spike, and then everyone would be very healthy. <laughs> so they wouldn't In need a world to where everybody smoked and drank, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, uh, people get old, unfortunately. And did they think that the nationalised industries would return a surplus? Because I'm sure they did. Yes, yes, they did. There's no sense. So, okay. So obviously with the nationalized industries, we can look back now. And I think most people would look back now and say, unless you're incredibly doctrinaire, I would say most, a lot of people would look back now and say, you've got that political capital, as it were, you've got that little space at the end of World War Two, while you're not really, you're not as badly bombed out as your European competitors. What are you going to do with that moment? And I think a lot of people now would say, I don't think nationalizing the coal mines... <laughs> is the is the future of economic policy in in sort of 20th century britain but they've inherited a lot of baggage they've got a lot of baggage from the 1920s and 30s you know that these are people who remember the general strike that as i said 
Ernest Bevan and Iron Bevan, Clement Attlee, Stafford Cripps, Hugh Dalton, they're old men with old commitments. Um, and yeah, they don't, it's as though they don't quite get even at, at that point that those heavy industries really are, are in the long run doomed. It doesn't occur to people that they're doomed actually. They think they're the backbone of Britain. They think this is what has won us the war, you know, industrial supremacy, mining, shipbuilding, steel making, all these things. So yeah, they do nationalize them. And I think in retrospect, it, it you know, you kind of wish they hadn't because I think it wasted a lot of time and effort and imagination that could have been spent on other things. Yeah. So we have got one thing happening in the war, which pre which um, prefigures what's going to happen later, which is the introduction of the purchase tax, Harriet. Yes. Do you know anything about the purchase tax? I don't know an awful lot about the purchase tax, I have to say, because it's never what I know tends to come up in the course of my practice. And this is I think it was a foreshadow of VAT, as you say, Graham, but um, it was quite different. It was charged at the point of the wholesale event. It wasn't yes. paid by the ta by the end user, was it? So it's basically like a one phase type. Exactly. Um, yes. I, I remember seeing in my dad's business, there being odd invoices floating around from pre-VAT that were never explained properly to me. Um, but it, it, And it was charged at different rates depending on yes. the product, right? I read in Dominic's book, White Heat, that um, the rate for cars at one point was 45%. Yeah, they had different rates. I mean, it seems crazy now. Such a uh, sort of bureaucratic, fiddly thing to do. They had different rates and they had they, they had this sort of, I mean, that, that runs all the way through, doesn't it? This sort of sense that some products are luxuries and therefore, you know, some, some aren't. And there's always this slight sort of weird, I think, slight censoriousness. Almost social engineering going on. Yeah, you shouldn't really be buying that, so we'll put an extra bit of tax on it. I, I was about to say, is this sort of one of the early examples of using tax for social engineering? Because I think one of the things that the modern dialogue lacks is whether or not that's what tax collection should be allowed about, but it seems to be accepted. And I don't think that's ever been something that's been discussed. Should we be using tax as a means of social engineering? Death duties yeah. is a very early example of that. It was specifically used to destroy the landed aristocracy, to make them take the houses apart, sell bits off to build three bedroom semis. Yeah, and this thing green, green novels hide in and things like that. Yeah, you go back to the arguments about the people's budgets in the Edwardian period before the First World War. Um, the idea of Lloyd, you know, for Lloyd George and people like that, building the foundations of the welfare state, the idea that there was a, that dukes are gonna pay for it. You know, that the, our, that there is this definite sense, you know, there are too many people with too much money. Um, and by fiddling with the welfare state, with the tax system and so on, we can kind of bring them down. Um, and, and so, yeah. When, sorry, when do you think that that's sort of been at its, at its zenith, I suppose, because it seems to me from my career, which is relatively limited, that sort of attitude has certainly accelerated through the last 20 years or so, but it sounds possibly in Edwardian times, it was even worse or even, no, even more. I don't know. I think actually what's happened among the general public, there's an acceptance now, isn't there? Or there's, um, yeah, there's sort of the idea of taxing fizzy drinks or whatever, which I think would have been unthinkable actually in the 1940s that you would, as it were, punish the consumer for making bad choices. I mean, obviously there's, there's taxes on alcohol, tobacco and so on. 
but I don't think they have the same moral charge back then. Um, I think the idea of a sort of moralistic tax <coughs> is relatively new. I, I mean, again, we're leaping ahead, but I know later on you want to talk about um, the selective employment tax, the SET of the mid 1960s. I mean, there's definitely a little bit of an edge there that there were some jobs that were better, some industries that were better than others, and they should be subject to, to different tax rates. But I actually think we're probably, we're probably have a more, we, we are more um, sort of attuned to the idea of social engineering now than probably any generation before us, actually, as I said. Because, because I think we've witnessed so much state intervention, yeah. especially in the last five, six years. I mean, it's, it's, I remember when Rishi Sunak stood up and basically said, I'm going to guarantee everybody's wages. I was shocked. But now it feels entirely like that's the thing that governments should do. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. When uh, COVID set a sort of precedent, didn't it? I mean, having, for, uh, having had austerity just before COVID, so austerity, the idea, you know, there's only so much government can do and it has to be paid off, no matter how painful. I mean, that's the sort of message that the current Cam Cameron Osborne coalition pushed. Um, the, the transformation from that to the Sunak, I mean, Sunak, I remember exactly that moment. And he, he repeated again, the line was, we will do whatever it takes. Sort of very wartime kind of line. Yeah. No matter how much it costs, we will pay for it. Of course, the issue with that is that if you can do that for the pandemic, then the energy bills, what's the next thing? It's not like history is going to stop. There'll be some new crisis in 2025, and people will say, "Whoa, you did it for COVID. Why can't you do it?" I mean, this is the. It's, it's almost like it's reset to... that, and this is entirely out of out of the the, the sequence that we want. But it's almost like it's reset the events of the 1980s. That government yeah. intervention is the base position now, whereas get on with it and make it work. Yeah, was so in 1987 not, a government yeah. that says bad luck, you know. <laughs> Life's a, life, life can be pretty hard. Suck it up. That's not the thing now. Um, and, and that's obviously how politics works. But um, anyway, we're, we're, there are we're, moments we're of consensus and the pendulum swings. What's acceptable at one moment suddenly becomes completely unacceptable in the next. I mean, that's that's the nature of political. So, history. what was the consensus in the sort of late forties and fifties? Because there were, you know, it wasn't all just Labour governments, was it? No, no, and Macmillan and Eden. Yeah. So political historians have um, their their characteristically sort of um, uh, oddly kind of to outsiders um, oddly vicious fights about whether or not there was a post war consensus. I think like was, lawyers, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I like anything. Um, I guess I would say there clearly was. Um, so although the two parties had very different kind of vocabularies, interest groups, ambitions, and so on, they're kind of on parallel tracks. They both have a um, you know, they, they both have a horror of unemployment born of their experiences in the 1920s and 30s. So that's the, the generation of people, you know, the Heath, Ely, Jenkins, Wilson, Callahan. They all remember the, the Great Depression. They also remember the war, the idea of people from different classes kind of pulling together. Uh, but also, obviously, they're completely shaped by that idea that the state will intervene. The state has a duty, you know, and the state can do it, actually. They've seen the state win two wars. So they have a, a great confidence in Whitehall and the idea of the Whitehall machine. So because of that, because of the fear of unemployment, um, because the, they believe that it is it is the state's sort of mission to ensure a high level of growth. 
um, that you you inflate the economy um, where necessary. Um, that and they you, do that by pouring money in, right? Is it does it, is it, is yeah, it a money by, supply question? They just increase the money supply and then that drives effectively. Growth. Yeah, by uh, they would um, cut tax, cut bank rates, as it was called then. If if the unemployment figures go, you know, if three hundred thousand people are unemployed, they'll take a couple of points off bank rate. Um, so it's called sort of stop go economics. Though they're constantly stopping and starting because the great sort of um, the thing that's holding them back is that Britain's the pound and international confidence in the pound. The fact they're also paying for all this stuff overseas, so that Britain has a terrible balance of payments deficit. I mean, you never hear of that now because we just take it for granted that we have a terrible balance of payments deficit. <laughs> But but in the fifties and sixties, this is a great concern when the balance of payments deficit becomes too great because people are buying too many imports. Um, it puts pressure on the pound. Uh, we're spending. That's more part of money. the same sort of misunderstanding of the economy, right? That they still they've the conceptually we're still the workshop of the world in their heads, right? And yeah. that we should be, you know, lots of steel mills and cars yeah. coming off production lines, where they don't quite understand that we're shifting towards a service economy. Um. It's not, I don't know whether it's not that they don't understand it. It's that they, they, I would say, stepping right back from this, that what you have after 1945 is basically 35 years of governments of both parties that are nerv very nervous about economic change, and understandably so, because they think that Britain has been top nation. Britain has been the great driver of globalization and of economic kind of progressivism, as it were. Um, until the beginning of the 20th century. And now other people have ca caught up at the beginning of the 20th century, the US and Germany. And, and now a lot of the change is actually going to, be going to be bad for us. I mean, they're right to think it is going to be bad for us, because it is. You know, Japanese motorbikes or whatever. Bad news if you're in Coventry making motorbikes, because they'll, be made, they'll make them better than you, and in the long run, your job is doomed. And I think what happens is after 1945, you have successive governments they really see their job as being to, trying to shield people from that, to hold on to what we have for as long as possible. And that's why when you have lots of government intervention in industry, which you have in the sort of 50s and 60s, quite often it's propping up industries that you would think now, looking back, you know, if you were playing a board game of Britain, would you invest your money in those in shipbuilding? Of course you wouldn't. Um, but they do it because, you know, the electoral, pre they don't want to see, it's a humiliation for these firms to go to the war it's very bad publicity for lots of people to be unemployed um if you're a labor government they're in labor areas and so on so the wilson government in particular the what you know you, the white heat of, te of technology government is actually spending a lot of money on the, uh, old technology that, yeah that are not the white heat of um so so i think there's, there's so, so essentially their solution to global economic change is to stop any change in the uk uh, I mean, some people would say I was being much too harsh, but I think that so there's a great example of that in Tony Benn's diaries. Tony Benn says to uh, Howard Will, to James Callahan, sorry, he says, um, it, I found out that a lot of our nationalized industries are using basically imported foreign products. What are we going to do about it? And um, Callahan says, well, we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, of course they are. <laughs> They're just using the best, cheapest products. That's how it is. You know, I can't remember exactly the detail. And, and Tony Benn says in his diary, this is an example of how Jim is just such a Tory. You know, this is this is uh, this is a very bad business. You know, we should be. And, and I think um, 
there is a sort of sense um, among a lot of the political class, actually, that um, they're just trying to cling on for as long as possible to this idea of a sort of a little island of, of, of sort of British industry um, with all these overseas threats and they can stave them off for as long as possible, you know, and, and hopefully somehow the, the overseas threats will go away. And then what you have in the 70s is a growing realisation they're actually not going to go away. They're just going to get worse and worse and somebody at some point is just going to have to bite the bullet. So the so, background to all this... Sorry, go on, Harriet. Um, at this point, you, you're definitely getting competition in trade. Are you also starting to get some of the... Um, what we call tax competition in the modern sense, which is states all looking at taking a bit of the same piece of pie, because I mean, I think as Graham and I know, it's in this period, the late fifties and the sixties, when we start to get an awful lot of double tax agreements, which um, taxpayers tend to think of being there to help them, but they're not really, they're there to help the two states divvy up who gets what, it's to make sure everyone gets yeah. the maximum they can. Um, I think I would say probably no. Um, you do, I think from the mid 60s onwards and then definitely in the 70s have the phenomenon. I know you want to talk about tax exiles. So you have the, the idea of a brain drain of people fleeing high tax rates and so on. But there's absolutely no sense, I would say, of the government thinking, oh, well, we need to therefore tweak. You know, so it's, it's more like people noticing the differences rather than the differences being engineered to attract people. Correct. Exactly. Because, of course, this is the point at which um, you have an 83% top rate of tax income yeah, tax and, and, and a 98%, is 98%, isn't it? 98% on so-called unearned income. Um, so this is the point at which, you know, the Beatles tax man, it's the Rolling Stones going off to France. It's, I mean, the, uh, for me, I think one of the, um, if anybody is listening who likes football, they will remember that Don Revy, who was the manager of England, went off to marry, manage the United Arab Emirates. I mean, you could hardly have a kind of more more richly symbolic moment <laughs> in the 1977. He goes off to manage the UAE and he says it's because of the tax structure. It is because I can earn basically in a year in the United Arab Emirates what I would earn in five or ten years as manager of England. Um, you and, and you do get sort of, you know, the Daily Express will run a big editorial about this saying, you know, we're being fleeced by the government too much tax. But I don't think there's any real sense, certainly, well, certainly not in the Labour Party, that, OK, we need to, I mean, fiddle with our tax structure. And in the Tory party, you don't really get that until Margaret Thatcher comes in in 1975. So I don't think there's any sense of Ted Heath <laughs> pouring over kind of competitive tax rates in West. Margaret Thatcher was a tax barrister, wasn't she? She actually yeah. understood the system, yeah. Um, which yeah. I think is probably probably drives that a little bit because when you've got the person in charge of the levers, actually understand how the levers work. Yeah, I um, think, so. and and in the seventies as well, when she comes in, there's a much there's a much broader sense of that nations are in competition with each other. Um, but also, there's a sort of wider cultural turn against high income tax, isn't there, in the United States and so on? Yeah. So all the way through this period that we're talking about, the 50s and the 60s, the, the number of taxpayers in the UK continues to, or the people paying income tax, not just the number of taxpayers in general, continues to rise. Um, and by the mid-1960s, it's pushing up at 20 million. So in 1909, it was 1 million. Then by 1945, it was 10 million. Then by 1965, it's 20 million. 
it's continuing to increase. Tax is no longer something that people in um, starch collars and top hats pay. Uh, it's something that everybody pays. Yeah. Um, and then so that, that, that then increases demands on the state because I paid in, um, I'm entitled, starts to become more of a, yeah. an idea. And we're starting to get in uh, towards the world where, um, where we have memories. But um, it's so health and welfare budgets continue to increase. So you see that, look, watch the graph. Everything's just going up. Right. And the government's intervening more like you like you just explained, Dominic. And it still has this outmoded, outdated taxation system based on income tax and the purchase tax, which the purchase tax isn't raising anything like VAT is at this point. And VAT would at this point. Um, so Jim Callahan then comes in. I know, Dom, you love Jim Callahan, don't you? You're big on Jim Callahan. There's not many fans of James Callahan out there, but I, I'm definitely one of them. Yeah, um, he's the first prime minister I remember. But he came in in 1965 as he was a um, terrible chancellor. I will just say this: he's an absolutely <laughs> terrible chancellor. And he does two particularly big things. One of which is still with us today, and one of which is entirely insane. Um, so, <laughs> Harry, what 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 was his? What did he do with um, the kind of gains that were outside the income tax net? in his 1965 budget? That was the introduction of um, capital gains tax um, and the creation of corporation tax, so a specific tax for corporates, which I am just old enough to bemoan the loss of the Income and Corporation Taxes Act 1988, which was much simpler than the um, simplified acts that we got in the early 2000s, but it's essentially a separate tax for corporates. Um, And that merges capital gains and income into one, right? For, for it, corporates. It they don't does, but not really. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, it, it does, but the treatment of capital gains still sits a little, and still today sits a little bit uncomfortably between Taxation of Chargeable Gains Act and the Corporation Tax Act. So, obviously, this is me betraying the fact that I don't work in the UK on a day-to-day basis. That's what Harry is here for. Um, so, uh, but he also, so it, for, for individuals, corporate uh, capital gains tax is, the, is one of the big changes, right? Because that's a whole new tax. It's never been taxed before. Um, and he gives people an allowance, doesn't he, of what is it, £1,000 a year? They can they can have £1,000 worth of... Um, of gains that, aren't, that, that gains. aren't taxed. That works out about £13,500 now. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that allowance, which still exists, hasn't sort of risen really in line with what one with might have I think that's an example of what, something called bracket creep which is a really easy way to raise taxes. Um, just don't put up the tax-free bands in line with inflation. And as everybody's wages, and obviously wage inflation doesn't track price inflation quite right, but it does follow it generally. Um, as everybody's wages rise, they automatically move up into the, into the new bands. And then coupled with that, you have inflation, which is driving down the value of your debt. And you can make your debt disappear and increase um tax take by doing nothing yeah that becomes such a big thing in the 60s and 70s because of course you got very high inflation if you've got inflation at 26 percent which we had in 1975 lots of people are being pushed into brackets for which they were never intended yeah and the debt that you started talking about that we owe to the americans yeah is it's going down in real terms yeah though so i think we finally paid it off under Tony Blair, didn't we? I think that was yeah, the last, I think that's right. The yeah. last payment was under yeah. Tony Blair. Um, so I think that's a great place for us just to pause and we'll come back in part two. <laughs>